Well, kia ora and welcome to Efeso Collins, who is a two-term Auckland councillor and running to be Auckland Mayor. Welcome to the Kaka. Oh, kia ora Bernard, and thanks for having me today. This is really, I'm quite excited I get to talk to you, so thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, no, we spoke, um, it would have been last year, I think, yeah, for a... Yeah, that's right. Maybe even a couple of years, <laughs> I can't remember. Mm. Time is um, flying in all sorts of funny directions these days. Um, and uh, I wanted to, I know there's less than a week to go before the polls close, so to speak, but I wanted to um, find out uh, what you're up to and uh, what your plans were. But firstly, I wanted to ask, why do you want to be mayor? Because you've been a councillor for a couple of terms and you've seen up close and reasonably personal um, what, <laughs> what it's like and, uh, and what you can achieve. Um, so what do, you, what, 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 what do you think you can do as mayor that you couldn't do as a councillor? Yeah, for, for me, this is about how we set the vision for Tamaki Makoto. And I'm really, uh, I'm grounded uh, here in this city. It's our city. It's the place where our family have chosen to make our home. And you know, I've talked on the campaign trail about my two daughters and how their roots are going to be here in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland. And so I'm committed to the city. I love this city. It's the city that's invested, not just in my life, but in uh, my family's life. You know, we're second, third generation uh, Samoans, New Zealand-born Samoans who have been here for some time now. Now, I'm, I'm really keen on this city. And so that's why I'm interested in this role, because I think this is the role where we set the vision for this city, where we lift our eyes, understand everybody's aspirations, desires. Yeah, there's challenges and frustrations too, but the role of the mayor is to set the, set the aspiration, the strategic vision of the city, and then invite everyone to be part of how we staircase towards that dream. And I'm, I'm excited about it. I'm still full of energy. It all ends on Saturday, and then we get a result. But I've really enjoyed the last 10 months, because I, I feel like I've been campaigning since about... Um, February or late last year as well and it's been a fantastic journey of meeting people and unfortunately not everyone agrees with me Bernard I've been really challenged by that but I've, I've enjoyed the opportunity to speak with people whether it's media whether it's at cafes or just meeting people on their doorsteps I've had some marvellous conversations with all this. You mentioned the vision um, if you become mayor it's quite possible you could be there for a couple of terms and some would say you need a couple of terms to um, make, yeah. make real progress what what could Auckland look like? What would you like it to look like? What do you think is realistic within a couple of terms? What's different? Yeah, I th I th that's a great question. And I think what's realistic for Auckland is, is firstly that we're very much a climate resilient, climate understanding and desire to attack and, and really take some clear actions against uh, climate change. And I think that's the kind of city we can be of. In the campaign, I've suggested fares-free public transport, which means we'll be connected better. We get on the bus for free. We know that it connects families. It makes it easier for those employees who are challenged because they're trying to get to and from places in the car. It gets us out of our cars, and that's a great start. Decongests the road. So I'd like to see a connected Auckland, and one where we understand each other really well. And I think that when we're looking at you know, issues of urban nahedi, and that's like urban forests, we know that for some areas there's really good tree covering or canopy cover, we call it, in some parts, and then there's really low canopy uh, cover in other parts of Auckland. We've got to do better so that everyone feels like this is our city. So I think 
being less car reliant is one of the key goals uh, for, for when I get into office and making sure that those who need to be on the road, if you're a tradie and you're trying to get goods around the place, then that's going to be a better experience for you. But with more of us cycling, walking on public transport, that's good for us in staying connected, but it's also got some really good health benefits as well because it means that you know, we're enjoying the air, we're cycling, we're doing some, uh, some exercise, and that's going to be great. So I think for me it's a clear desire to lead a climate action council and get us really focused on what's going to make a difference there. And we're going to need a collaborative council too, and I think I'll bring that style to the table where we invite discussion, good, robust discussion, but we've got to be one to the dream. And the dreamers will facilitate the conditions that the planet will last the distance. We care, we are kaitiaki of, of the planet, we care about the planet, and that we're ensuring that tomorrow's generations have every opportunity to flourish. So the Auckland uh, Council has this um, uh, plan to, or at least its um, commitment to reduce transport emissions by more than 60% mm. over the next uh, few years. How, how is the Auckland Council in partnership with Waka Kotahi actually going to do that? Because there are plenty of activists who say that uh, not enough has been done to mm. a build up the public transport networks but also convert roads into cycleways yeah. and walkways yes yeah, so, so and that's a big challenge and i, I think we, we've all got to be up for it not just the people running for, for office but everyone here in tamaki makoto i think what we've got to do is, is remember that we need you know the, the research tells us that more people would cycle if they felt it was safe and so a connected safe cycling infrastructure is going to help us we all want if the kids can get to school by bike I, that means that they're going to be safe you and i want to as parents we want to be knowing that like when our kids go off to school that they're going to be on a, a safe way to get there and you know, out, out south where i am a lot of the time even out west we do walking buses and it's great parents get to meet each other we all have turns as to who does the walking bus so definitely getting more people onto their bikes, being less car reliant. And we've built a car reliance over the last 70 years. So that's going to take us time not to just shift physically eh, and the mechanics of shifting, but also mentally, because we've seen the car, for some of us, we've seen the car as almost a rite of passage as part of being an Aucklander. And adjusting some of that thinking is going to be difficult. So we've got to get it right. We've got to take the community with us if we're going to be using um, more of the, the roads for cycling ability and, and for um, priority bus lanes. We've got to take the community with us because I know there are some businesses that are frightened by that. And, and that's fair enough because they know that people park up and they come in. But it's inviting them to look at, you know, a case studies like in Melbourne, the Catriona study showed that as more parking space or was made available for, for cycling lanes. It actually increased people coming through the shops. And so as we have those conversations, invite people to understand those studies and what might work best, then that's going to support it too. I think slightly away from transport, but very much connected, is intensification. And look, I live in an apartment, Bernard, and we've got a complex here in Otahu. But where I live is, you know, it's in an apartment. I'm next door to a beautiful park, the Mason Reserve. I live next door to the library. There's good amenity around the place, the school isn't far. And when people understand that we don't need our car, well, I mean, 
about 10 years ago when I worked at the university, our family had two cars. We're now down to one car, which we hardly use. We only might use the car two or three days in the week because I'm on a road that's on a good bus line. I'm not far from the train station. If I walked 12 minutes, I'd get to the train station. So that's good too. On a nice day, I'll just walk to the train station. So all of that means the intensified way of living is the future for Auckland and we're going to be less car, car reliant. I just wonder, though, um, most people in Auckland still have to use their car or their double cab ute or uh, a truck to get around. And uh, to, to connect up all of Auckland to uh, reliable uh, um, public transport would require a significant thickening out of the uh, bus um, service, not just the number of buses and drivers, but also the number of routes and the frequency of routes. Is Auckland Transport doing enough in terms of investment and is there the budget flexibility for Auckland to actually provide that network of public transport you'd need before you say to people, now it's time to jump out of your cars? I think for, for some parts of Auckland, there's a really good network. Where I live, I can rely on the network. But I also know as I've got around the city, places like Millwater, Manurewa, Papakura, even getting a, a small bus up to Piha, there's challenges in the network. So we're really going to, to in, in order for us to do that, we're going to have to make sure we've got the right reach, the right network going, and it's a network that's reliable. You've touched on the challenge around bus drivers as well. We know that bus drivers earn a whole lot more if they were driving in Sydney than if they were driving here in Auckland. So that whole uh, process needs to be looked at. But what I'm confident of, of at the moment is I think there's enough people who, who live close enough at the moment to good bus lanes that they can start the, the journey of getting out of their car. And I, you know, I suggested that people should give some thoughts and maybe just deciding I'm going to plan my journey for the day and I'll use the bus for this day and I won't need the car for a day. And we made a commitment as a family, you know, we went down to one car and then we said to ourselves, well, you know, my wife was dropping me off into town, she was working in town. Then we made a decision, well, on Tuesdays and Thursdays, we're going to try just catching the bus. And you start to staircase your own family into it by planning ahead. And so I think it's really important that we plan ahead. When we paid the uh, climate action targeted rate right across throughout Auckland, we knew that what it was doing was bringing another half million people closer to living with it. Sorry, not half million. I think it was about 17,000, 70,000 people closer to being within half a kilometre of of a good rapid transit network. So if people are only walking anywhere between five and ten minutes, then it's, it's not a hassle to get to the bus stop. Some research says that people will walk depending on where they live and what they're doing are quite happy to walk 15 anywhere between 15 and 30 minutes so let's just do it in small steps because then people will say yep i'll get out of my car i'll do it today and then as they enjoy that bus experience where the bus turns up on time it's regular enough they trust it to get them from point a b to c then they're going to be on the buses but we've got to look at how we finance that because what what i'm suggesting is let's really hone in on what's going to achieve our climate goals and as part of that that emphasis that's where we're going to focus our spend because in the last couple of years with covid um, the council's revenues uh, fell um, Mm. parking um, fees those sorts of things and its costs rose um, in helping to deal with the uh, covid crisis which meant because auckland is close to its uh, debt limits as set by the lgfa of Mm. it's now briefly above 300 percent of revenue Mm. um 
there, there was actually moves to cut back some um, investment projects in public transport, uh, I think delay the um, number mm. of electric buses. Uh, how much of an issue is that debt limit and this um, assumption that Auckland should keep its AA plus credit rating, which, by the way, was upgraded a wee while ago? Yeah. yeah you, so you, many of your listeners will know that when we were going through the emergency budget, they were, we were able to lift our debt limit. We kind of set it at around 270%. Then it, it, when the emergency budget was finally resolved on at council, we settled on 290. I was suggesting 310 at the time because debt at that stage was very cheap. This is going back a couple of years. And for Aucklanders to understand that we'd lost $900 million in revenue. So you have to look at those levers. You'll understand that many of your listeners who listen to you understand the, the economics really well. And so it's working out which of the levers we're moving. And you've touched on the fact that we've had to delay projects. Delaying projects has meant we've been able to settle some of our accounts, you know, in the sense that we're, we're, we're reaching a balanced position, which we have to do by law as a council. At the moment, we sit at around 255% of our debt um, level ceiling. So that's actually good. We should be proud of that, that we're well below the 290 that we came to for the emergency budget, but where we wanted it to be at 270. What that does mean, though, is we've got to focus. This becomes an issue of prioritisation. I'd love for the Crown to share a lot more of their money with us, and we could start by them giving back the GST we pay on rates, which is around $300 million. But notwithstanding that we've got to look at how we balance our books as a council and so we're looking at rates and we're looking at what gets delayed and we all know that we went through an efficiencies drive as well which meant 500 jobs were lost at council so all of this is the way in which we look at it and we've got to get that package right i'm never comfortable with people losing jobs i know that at council the the way we ended up doing it was more around attrition rather than lay people off as people were either retiring or going on to other the jobs, we decided not to renew those uh, vacancies or fill those vacancies because that meant no one was losing a job. But that puts pressure on the current staff and so it becomes a real challenge of prioritisation where we can find extra revenue, where we've lost revenue and how we really need to advocate to the Crown that they've got to do better at sharing. Of all the public money available, local government gets 7%, the Crown gets 93%. We've got to do better and I think that the Crown can work with us and work in, in a establishing some good ideas on how we share a lot of the public money available to the city. Is it realistic, though, that you can achieve your climate aims, which are pretty dramatic reductions in transport emissions, and be stuck uh, with that mm -hmm. AA-plus credit rating, and also the government having its limit of uh, no more than 30% of net debt, uh, being its debt-to-GDP ratio? In essence, what I can see here is that both forms of government, central mm -hmm. and local, are choosing a double A plus credit rating over achieving their climate aims. Yeah, that, and that's a really good way to put it. And that's where the advocacy comes in. One of the things that I've suggested is that we get a, a, a climate fora of mayors, say mayors who are elected to office and getting us all to combine together. Yeah, share professional services, share our learnings from each uh, jurisdiction. But I think we've really got to take it to the Crown and say if this is what we want to achieve as a nation, then we've got to look at all of our settings. That includes economic settings or financial settings that we've set ourselves 
and asking ourselves whether they're too restrictive. I've already talked here about where we might be able to find some monies available to local government just by paying back the GST that we pay on rates. But there's other ways to do it too. And, you know, if you look at the way the government is heading, they want to achieve these goals. They are committed to achieving the climate goals that we've set for the nation. So we've got to have a clearer discussion on to, on how that is done. And so I'm willing, alongside other mayors, which is why I called for that um, forum uh, of mayors to come together, because that means that local government is involved in this discussion too, rather than just looking at us as, you know, 70 odd different jurisdictions throughout the country. By actually coming together, we form a strong advocacy voice to say to the Crown, let's do it together, rather than, well, you'll give a bit here and we're supposed to set our bits here with the limited resources that we have. Let's look at ways we can share the resource. But it is, it's a mighty challenge that we have in front of us because you don't want to get stuck. We're going to need to resource these activities, but we can't just get stuck because to some degree we're, you know, it might be seen as pandering to, you know, economic conservatism. What we want to do is have a clear discussion on where we can get the finance to resource these activities. One of the um, issues that councils around the country have um, repeatedly said is that, as you mentioned, most of the benefits of, in fact, more than 90% of the revenue benefits from economic growth and GST and income tax go to the central government, and a much smaller share goes to uh, councils in the form of rates and other other fees. What do you think... uh, is needed in terms of a restructuring of that central local government financial relationship to not only fund the infrastructure to cope with growth, but also to share the revenues that come from growth to change the incentives, particularly for councils. Yeah, I think all of us are key, are committed to climate action. And so if that became the premise of the discussion, and I think central government and local government or councils throughout the country will be willing to sit down and, and to speak about this. But it's it's the, the need for the leadership in that area. And I, having been now in local government for the last nine years, I get the impression that there's this behind the scenes attitude or back of the mind attitude that local government's like the poorer cousin when it comes to, to governance throughout the country. And what we need is for, in, in Auckland's case in particular, it's for the government to understand just how big we are. We represent nearly 40% of the nation's GDP. And we've got to ask ourselves if if this is what Auckland represents, and it could well be, I've been told by you know differing people with an economics background to suggest that Auckland could well be 50% of the GDP in the next 15 to 20 years and if that's the case then the governors of Auckland need to challenge the Crown as to how we get a better sharing arrangement so that we can do what needs to happen. Now the Crown is looking at light rail as an example. At the moment we're sitting there thinking we can advocate a position but the Crown's going to pay for it and I thought well let's do better than that. We pay at the moment, Auckland Council pays half of the CRL, and the government pays the other half. But us finding that half is a lot harder, given our econo- our, our resource position. And so that's where the better conversations can happen. So I would be challenging the Crown daily to sit down with local government, sit down with Auckland Council in particular, and say, let's work out a better way for the funding arrangements to work. There's currently a review of local government happening at the moment. They are looking at how, how they're going to finance local government. And I'm hoping that out of that review, it's going to lead us to some better ideas on how we do it, almost similar to what you see in the Australian models. So um, 
What's interesting there is that the councils have to pay for at least half the infrastructure um, to cope with growth, and the government gets the majority of the revenues from the growth. They also control the migration settings. We obviously yeah. can't control who decides to leave New Zealand, but um, the government is the one that can say how many people could come in on temporary work visas or RSC schemes or as students or backpackers. Do you think there needs to be an agreement between government and local government about population growth, at least from uh, migration, so that you can both plan and and have the funding arrangements to deal with it? Absolutely. And I think that, you know, we haven't seen a minister for Auckland in, in the last uh, term of government. I think that would be a good place to start, given that I think there's 40 MPs that come from Auckland anyway, and the mayor has the ability for Auckland, at least, to call everyone together. So there are definitely those levers that we can pull. But immigration is hard for everyone, eh? in the sense that you want, you want skilled labour to come through, you want families to be able to connect. But if we haven't got housing right, if we haven't got the settings for good public transport, then it's not going to benefit anybody. And so we've got to seriously look at that. You know, the, the, the other end to that is the fact that, as Salvation Army tells us, we're already 30,000 houses short as we are currently in Auckland. And so we've got some, we've, we've really got to set these challenges because it's important that we work together. If we don't work together and we can't resolve things that are challenging Auckland at the moment, we are going to struggle for the rest of the country. So I'd love a conversation, especially around immigration settings, who we're asking to come into the country and how we resource the level of growth that we're having. Uh, one of the controversial aspects in the last uh, wee while is around densification and the mm -hmm. uh, moves to allow three-storey, uh, uh, three townhouse per section um, developments. What's your view on the current unitary plan that's been put to the government, which seems to carve out large chunks of the leafy suburbs as well as um, block out the entire apparent route of the Auckland um, CBD to Mangere, uh rail line? Mm -hmm. um, is there enough being done to zone for densification in Auckland? Yeah, that, it was a tough discussion. When, when the parliament passed... Uh, they decided that they were heading in this direction. I think what Auckland Council did in our assessments was really fair, tried to take a really um, fair approach to it. I, as I've stated on other occasions, I'd love to see increased densification. What we do know is that for more of the central suburbs, that's been the lowest areas of population growth in the city. Where we've seen real population growth are areas in southwest Auckland because that's where we've intensified. And intensification needs to happen across the board. And similar to the note I made earlier, when, you're, when you've got good amenity, you're, good, you're close to town or close to where you work in school, when you don't need to rely on a car, that's where you need intensification. And we know that some of the suburbs closer to the city need to have that kind of intensification. I think we landed on a position that most people was, were comfortable with. I don't think it, it, um, it made anybody happy in the end. But those are the, the that's what we have to do. It's still got a hearings process to go through over the next year. But I think I get the impression that from what I've heard, uh, for, you know, some of the the things I'm hearing in the background is that they might still require us for increased levels of densification. I think we've got to understand that heritage is covered under law. It's the special character side where we've got to be able to, to handle the growth. And I think we, we landed on a good place and how we'll many, see how the hearings go. How many of those heavily um, renovated villas are actually character, character um, villas? Well, 
you know, the open plan living wasn't part of the plan in 1910. Yeah. And yeah. it seems that Greylin, Ponsonby, Mount Eden, Parnell, Remuera, frankly, the rich suburbs, uh, but the closest ones to town have been carved yeah. out. And there's like this donut effect where the densification is actually not closest to town. It's, you know, five, ten k's yeah. away and around town. Um, why, why couldn't those leafy suburbs be um, revisited for densification? Because so many of those uh, uh, villas are actually, they're not historic objects. They're um, heat pumped and open planned to within an inch of their lives. Yeah, yeah I, that's the discussion that we try to have, and it's getting to that matured conversation. I think that people are very protective of what they believe is theirs and what they believe is the architectural value that Auckland has at the moment. As we um, evolve as a city, as we change, it's having the conversation such that people are coming with us. And, you know, a lot of people were saying this was forced on us by the Crown. At the end of the day, we're 30,000 houses short. And I think that you need leadership in the city that's going to get out there amongst the communities and say this is where we're heading. There's going to be the nice conversations as in the robust, respectful ones, but there comes a time where you come away from the carrot and you move towards the stick. And I think if we're not careful as, as Aucklanders, we're going to have the stick on us where it's, it feels like people are more forced to get at this level of intensification. We're not chasing people out the door, but we are saying to them, if you sell that property, it will be made available two, three stories of housing on the basis that that's allowable now under the new uh, under the new national policy statement, which gives us the opportunity to do that. I just think we haven't in, engaged in the conversation very well up until this point. What's your view on whether or not Auckland should go out or up? Uh, because... Um, there's a bunch of people who would say, you know, the easiest quick wins are greenfields. Um, mm. It's less disruptive to, you know, existing residents, less likely to cause um, challenges under the RMA or whatever replaces it. And uh, actually, uh, a lot of those areas on the edges of town may not necessarily be commuter suburbs. They may be, you know, entire new Subcities in their own right, where people are commuting around those particular areas. So, what do you? What's your view on on greenfields? Yeah, I'm I'm more an up person. I think intensification. I think the the, the sprawl that we've got at the moment shows us why we're so car reliant. And over the last seventy years, we've just planned for sprawl, and I think it's been a failure of our thinking. And now we've got to think about what's modern, what's climate friendly or climate resilient, and that's intensification. And I'm confident that we can get there, but this is going to take us some time to get through with people. We're going to have to have really robust conversations on this. But intensification is the best way to go, and it means that people are going to be close to work, close to school. But, you know, one of the things that's interesting I've found on council is we have to come up with a 10-year plan, an annual plan, a 30-year vision for the city. Governments don't need to do that. Hey, they sit in Wellington, they make their decisions as they go. So we're not planning in conjunction or in collaboration with one another. If we're saying this is what we see Auckland looking like in the next 30 years, then the government should be saying, cool, okay, that's what you've resolved on. You've gone out and you've consulted in the community. That's what the community wants. How do we support those plans that the community have agreed to and I think that's I find it ironic that we're doing these 30 year plans we have to do them by law but the government doesn't have to and sometimes and as a result of that you can't there's there's little um, congruence between what they're doing and what we're planning for. 
Just uh, finally, we've got a question from uh, one of our attendees today, Angus, who asks, what governance changes will you make to deliver and finance climate action meaningfully, measurably, urgently and transparently? My um, uh, addition to that question is when you say government, when he says governance changes, I'm guessing what changes within council um, in terms of uh, uh, who's running Auckland Transport, how the yeah. committees are set up, what the um, finance arrangements are. So what changes would you make to actually get there? Because as we saw in the court case involving a challenge to Auckland Council and Auckland Transport, um, actually when push comes to shove, people inside council, not necessarily the, the mayor or the councillors, but um, those actually making it happen on the ground, took the view that this was just a general lofty statement and um, it didn't really need to actually deliver, <laughs> deliver the uh, emissions reduction. Yeah, I think I, I, I'm going to try and interpret it around some of the CCOs and if, there's, if I'm missing sure. anything, then my apologies and I, I can pick it up later. But one of the things that I've suggested is that we'll put two voting councils back on the, the board of Auckland Transport. I think that'll make a di difference. Section 91 of the Act says that they need to be connected to the plans and policies of council. So I think that's going to connect us better. Failing that, let's see how they go in the next three years. But if it doesn't work, then I think ultimately you want to bring AT back in-house we can also do the same with a slight adjustment in our policy, internal policies and we could get a voting councillor on the board of the Ports of Auckland. So that's another thing that we can do. We've already changed. We've seen a shift in the board chair and the CEO. So I think that's going to align a little bit better. And we're going to make sure we push hard, drive hard on health and safety. And so, and with all of the other um, CCOs, we can see some governance arrangements such that there are voting people on those boards because that's really going to strengthen our connection, make sure they're committed to the things we're doing. When it comes to ensuring we're achieving our climate goals, that's going to be a financial discussion with everybody. And so we've seen what the climate action targeted rate's going to do, increase urban nahere, electrifying the fleet, 70 more new um, number of, of buses, sorry, electric buses coming in, and then more and more thousands of people living within half a kilometre of a main bus line. So all of that has to happen, but we're driving, if we're focusing and prioritising our spend in those areas, that's what's going to help us achieve our climate goals, but we've got to get the council to agree. And just finally, um, the Infrastructure Commission and the government have talked a lot about how to um, fill the $100 billion gap that's been built over the last 30 years and the 100 billion, this is nationwide, uh, over the yeah. next 30 years. One of the solutions that was put forward by government and the Infrastructure Commission, but no one quite seems to want to commit to yet, <laughs> is the idea of congestion charges. What's your mm. view on congestion charges and who should get the money? Yeah, so for Auckland, at the end, I think we should, we've got to phase out. Firstly, the first step is phase out the regional fuel tax and then introduce the congestion charge. And then all of that money we can use for infrastructure projects. Keeping in mind though, that the congestion charge, as it's modelled at the moment, won't bring in as much as the regional fuel tax is bringing in to Auckland Council at the moment. So we've got to work out where there's a shortfall or where there's not that level of money available to us, who we're going to work with to either get that money in, can we stretch some of the revenues coming from our external investments or do we work closer with the crowd to see if they can bump up their contributions? Excellent. Um, Professor Collins, uh, Auckland mayoral candidate, thank you so much for your time today and for being on the kaka. Kia ora. Kia ora.
and that's us out. Thank you very much. Uh,